listening to the CIPD podcast series. Hello and welcome to the podcast which this month comes from the CIPD's annual reward conference in London. We're going to be looking at reward from a global perspective. How can organisations effectively deploy reward to achieve objectives in many different locations? And how can they maintain equity and motivation when market rates and conditions vary so much around the world? I'm joined by the CIPD's own reward advisor, Charles Cotton, and also by representatives from two organisations both operating on the global stage, Peter Newhouse, who's Global Head of Reward at Unilever, and Francis Richardson, Head of Reward at Oxfam. Charles, shall we kick off with the basics? Let's talk about the key elements to look at in global reward, and, and is it different to local? I think the main difference is around the issue of delivery. Um, if you look at how reward is classically thought of, it's about what the organisation is trying to achieve, uh, what does the organisation therefore need from its employees to be successful, what values, behaviours, performances, attitudes, uh, skills, and how are these then going to be rewarded and recognised, and you know how are we going to get the, uh, the people we need into the organisation, how are we going to retain and, and engage them. When you move to an international context, uh, you start looking at, there are more, I suppose, more contextual issues that you need to take into account. So if you're looking at just creating reward in the UK, you just need to look at the UK legal system, regulatory system, and perhaps you know, society as well. But when you start operating um, in India or China or Australia, then you start to realise there are different legal issues, uh, different um, regulatory issues, all of which can have an impact on you, not so much the principles of your reward strategy but ha how it is delivered and say for instance you may think in this context uh, you know, an employee share plan won't work so therefore how are we going to try and um, allow people to share in the success of the organisation is there something else we can do rather than giving them share plans because it won't work here and for most organisations is cost actually going to be the top priority or is it more about alignment with the strategy or ensuring your market competitive? Well, ability to pay is always going to be um, critically important because if you haven't got the funds, you're not going to uh, uh, be able to operate uh, in that country. But obviously cost, you know, um, so, so, so cost is key, but also you know, you've got to at least offer a salary that people are going to want to kind of join your organisation. And similarly, if you're going to um, send people overseas uh, to fill certain skill gaps, you're going to have to do something to kind of uh, make them want to go. Either it's perhaps giving them uh, more money um, or it's offer, off, offering them potential, as, um, you know, uh, potential of earning more money in the future because it will help their um, career going forward. And there's also... Some places in the, in the world are more glamorous than others, and it might be that may be the benefit in its own right to go and live, you know, work and live in places like Seattle or Washington. Um, As opposed to Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone may be <laughs> yeah. more challenging, or possibly Absolutely. a place like Zurich, which often has a dull reputation. You know, you may have to uh, give people a bit more money to go to a place like that because there's less to do. Well, let's hear about Unilever. Peter, I mean, we all know the name. Um, how many people do you have globally? Well, we have about 168,000 people, so we've got lots of people. We operate in about 100 countries, so we have plenty of complexity. Uh, we take a lot of our lessons from the business itself. You know, we're trying to operate 
global brands across the world. So there's some things that we like to do because we are a global company employing people at certain levels to do global things. At other levels, we've got people who work in our factories and supply chain who are very local, who do things locally, who are very unlikely to be part of a mobile workforce. And so we have our feet in the local geography where we employ people, but near the top of the organisation, we try to operate in a very global fashion. So how many people do you have on the move around the world at any one time? Well, we've got about 1,600 internationally mobile employees that we recognise as such. So we have a global international assignment policy and we've got about 1,600 people. But in addition to that, we also have people who move as local employees, local to local. So they have the opportunity to pick up a job somewhere else in the Unilever network if that's possible for them and what they want to do. And then we also have, underneath the main policy, a lot of improvisation, often for cost reasons, where people want to get mobility, but they don't necessarily want to use the global Unilever policy to do that. OK. Now, let's kick off with that thorny question of pay and the issue of do you pay people according to where they are or where they come from? How do you do it? For the globally mobile, we've tried various approaches to this, so a bit of history... I think it would be fair to say that you know, over a long period of time, Unilever was unusual and identified very much with a host-based payment system. So we tended to put people into host country pay arrangements when we moved them from country to country. Um, a few years back, we changed that policy, so we've now gone in the opposite direction, and we now pay people much more in terms of where they came from. So we have a home-based payment policy, and we've been operating that since about... 2007, not with total success, I think it would be fair to say, because of the numbers of nationalities involved in our mobile population. We've got you know, well over 25 nationalities mobile. Um, so if you're in any one large centre, you could have up to 22 different ways of paying people to do the same thing. So that causes some difficulties. Friction between colleagues. Yes, and perceptions of inequity and uh, all those sorts of issues. So it is something we're looking at right now to sort of think about how we can improve the way that we do it. But presumably you also face issues if you pay people according to where they are because by necessity some local pay will be considerably higher than others. So do you then get issues about people not wanting to go to certain postings? Yeah, there's no perfect solution to this. I mean, And you're also dealing with a mobile landscape um, in terms of exchange rates, inflation rates... So, for example, when you look around the world now, you look at a country like Brazil, it's very expensive from an employment point of view because the people earn quite a lot of money. Well, that wasn't the case a few years ago. It's been generated by big shifts in exchange rate, big shifts in inflation rates. And so relative value in terms of pay isn't a stable concept in itself. It does shift over time. And so that gives you an added level of complexity when you're moving people over what could be a substantial part of their career. Okay, I think we're starting to get our heads around just how complicated this is. But, Francis, let's let's talk about Oxford. How many people do you have? Most of your people aren't UK-based, are they? That's probably the first thing to say. That's right, because we're an international development and humanitarian organisation. Our business is actually in developing countries. And we have about 5,000 people around the world, uh, most of them in the 50 countries uh, or so in which we work. And you pay matching to local norms, is that right? We have national staff and we we do like to employ people from the country concerned wherever possible to to build the skills within that country to to be able to um, 
do their own development and their own humanitarian response. Uh, but of course the skills are quite lacking in some of the poorest developing countries, so we may need to bring in skills uh, by using expatriates to fill gaps and we will want some of our senior managers to have experience in working in a number of different parts of the world. But if, say, a senior manager came who was a French national, for the sake of argument, and went to work in a developing country, would they be, they'd be paid according to the country they were then working in rather than their base norm back in Paris? We try to distinguish between the, the level of skills we need rather than where the person has come from. So if a job requires skills that you would get by having worked internationally previously, we have a common global pay rate for those jobs with certain adjustments to take account of cost of living in the country concerned. But whether you're French or American and going to work in India makes no difference as far as Oxfam is concerned. You'll be paid on the same global pay rate. And as Peter's been saying, they've got issues around colleagues doing similar jobs, being on different packages. Presumably you, you avoid that with your system. Um, yes, um, to, to a large extent. We've actually got a rather paradoxical problem that we've got a system that, that is very good at encouraging people to move internationally when we want. Um, now that we're trying to have more people working in their home country, once people have got international experience, it does mean to say that they're less keen to move back to their home country when that's what we want them to do. Ah, so how do you get around that? Um, we, we are rowing back on some of our international packages and the number of staff that it applies to. Um, one way of doing that is by going for shorter assignments. So, for example, for humanitarian disasters, we've now got pools of people, uh, national staff in different countries, who will be called up to do a fairly short stint in the early stages of a humanitarian emergency and they'll get a, um, an additional amount, perhaps 10%, over and above their national salary with their expenses paid in the country that they're working in. But they won't be going to the full global rate that then makes them reluctant to take those skills that they've learnt back to their home country. How do you deal at Unilever with incentivising people to move to places that perhaps they're not that keen to go to? Yeah, I think um, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, to be interna international in Unilever is really useful because Unilever is a very international company. So it's sort of inconceivable that you could get on very far in Unilever without experience and international perspective, understanding how the business works. So it's career progression. There's a lot of career progression. Nonetheless, the money is important. And so getting the money right and the balance in the package between, for us, incentives together with fixed pay, relativity against other people who are moving around, all of those are quite important issues. And as you said, um, you know, whether you want to get people back home is a big driver, um, whether you want people to stay in one place is another big driver, shifting labour around from one part of the world to another is another issue. We have quite a few hubs around the world where you know, we effectively have regional centres and those regional centres tend to become magnets for people in the vicinity um, in the Unilever universe and we want those people to cluster together for economies of scale. And obviously there are cultural differences in people's perception of what equates to reward, aren't they, around the world. Is that an issue for you, Francis, that you know, people don't necessarily want the same thing so you can't really have a global strategy? Um, 
In Oxfam, we very much need to have a global strategy, partly because we are in 50 different countries. So the number of employees in some of these countries will be quite small. It simply wouldn't be viable for each country to have a completely independent reward strategy. But secondly, because we do have a lot of people moving around the world, and we would also have a, a global career development structure with people coming from countries to go and work in regions, head office and moving between different countries, particularly on the humanitarian work stream of, uh, of the organisation. Um, so I think the trick is to have a, a global framework that is adaptable to the local circumstances. And you're absolutely right, there are some things that may not be so valued in some countries as others. So for example, um, does everybody want a Western-style pension scheme or is some other form of, of saving for when they stop work, um, hopefully when they reach retirement age, um, more useful in some countries than a Western-style pension? Yeah, it's interesting you raise pensions because I want to move on to that actually. But just before I get there, I mean, presumably, Charles, and it relates to pensions actually, international regulation and compliance is a, well, I hesitate to call it a fetter, but an issue for all these elements of reward. So you've got two almost um, opposing forces. On the one hand, you've got the uh, force of convergence. Technology has shrunk the world. Um, we're constantly told that we're living in a global village and it's 24 7. Uh, more organisation, uh, more countries are opening up now to trade. Uh, so we're seeing a convergence there. All uh, countries are competing against one another on rates of tax, um, legislation, corporation tax. So you've got there a kind of almost a harmonisation or con convergence of. Uh, of, um, of practice. Um, increasingly, lots of countries, um, you know, the capital cities look rather the same. You go down the high street, it's very similar. Um, so the reason why food prices have gone up is because the developing nations are starting to adopt, a, you know, for right or wrong, a Western uh, eating habit. And many organisations are saying, well, do we really need to have a different reward approach in France or Germany or Spain? Why don't we just, um, like Peter's mentioned, you know, arrange things along um, product lines? But at the same time, you've got, I suppose, these pressures of divergence. We've perhaps living in a time when you've had um, never had so much information um, that's kind of pouring forth about well, what these are, what, this is kind of the reward um, issues and the reward data that's going on in Zimbabwe. This is what's going on in Afghanistan. And it's then a very challenge to actually interpret all this um, information to say, well, how does this uh, make, uh, how do I make sense of this as, an, as, as a reward practitioner to work out, well, what should the salary scales be in these regions? What should be the market rates we're adopting for these individual um, occupations? How should we be looking at, uh, at pay progression at a time when, um, whilst you've got one set of uh, pressures trying to harmonise, I suppose, the tax rates, you've got other issues where, you know, more domestic, where perhaps the population are saying, well, you know, we believe that tax rates should be higher or there should be regulation of the financial services sector or there should be regulations around here. And it then can be um, a lot harder for organisations to think, well, how do we kind of combine, on the one hand, we're wanting to make a more uh, coherent uh, and simplistic approach towards reward 
yet we've got these other pressures which are trying to make it even harder to deliver that. And I think it's, again, you know, no easy answers, no right way. It's kind of just trying to balance that tension. But obviously when you're looking internationally, you've got so many more tensions to balance and in, and in so many different areas. I'm going to presume, Peter, this is a big constant headache for you. It is. Uh, you could sort of do it a bit like this, roughly 170,000 people. Let's imagine that each package has about 10 elements. That's 1.7 million bits of pay flying around, each of which are driven off position, performance and potential. So you've got three dimensions, three drivers. So that's about five million aspects, you know, amongst the whole things. So the drive for simplification is kind of helpful because when you've got those five million aspects flying around based on inflation rates, exchange rates and career progression, you've got a fairly complicated mix of bits and pieces. So anything you can do to drive the simplicity and the consistency and the predictability of how all of that works is a big plus for a large organisation. What do you do about pensions? Well, we have a general policy towards defined contribution pension plans. Um, We don't put in pension plans unless there's some kind of a market for them. In other words, we don't have a point of principle that says we must always have pension plans. If the local market is doing something along those lines, we keep an eye on it. And when we feel it's the right thing to move, we move. Um, And where we do move, we would prefer to do a defined contribution pension plan rather than a defined benefit pension plan, because that gives us more flexibility. And how does that work at Oxfam? In Oxfam, because our organisation exists to overcome poverty and suffering, we do believe in encouraging our staff to save for their retirement so that they won't be poor in their own old age. Having said that, of course, pension schemes don't exist in a lot of the countries where we operate, places like Afghanistan. And so what we do is, if staff can join our UK pension plan, we put them into that. Um, We will support staff to put a contribution with a a doubling contribution from the employer if they can join a personal pension in their country of work or their home country. For Europeans, we may support them to stay in their home country social security system. That does still leave a lot of our national staff in developing countries without any form of retirement savings. And in those cases, at the moment, we pay a lump sum when they leave the organisation. But we are now looking to move to the next step of introducing a global pensions framework and a a global pensions plan, certainly for our mobile employees, with the possibility of putting some of our national staff into that. Uh, But as Charles says, we also need to take account of legal requirements because there may be other things happening in that country. So we need to look at how much we are spending already on state provident benefit schemes and so on and take that into account in deciding how much Oxfam can contribute as well as that to a company pension. Okay. Well, we're pretty well coming towards the end of our time, but I would just like to talk about evaluation because obviously that, that is at the crux of all this. How do you evaluate whether you're getting this right and whether you, know, it's, you, you actually need to adopt different strategy? Francis, what do you do? We take account of whether or not we're able to recruit and retain staff of the quality that we need at the pay levels that we're offering. We benchmark ourselves against other organisations to see whether our pay is competitive or in some cases perhaps we may be spending more than we need to compared to other organisations. So I would say that it's, it's a mixture of good data and experience and judgement. 
How about Unilever? Um, I think this is a really important area and kind of very exciting because in, in many respects what we have are consumers of reward inside of Unilever. And we like to learn from our business. So we have consumers of our products. We also have customers. The customers aren't necessarily the people who consume the product. So the customers for reward in Unilever are often the managers who want to motivate their staff to do the things that Unilever wants to do. But the consumer themselves are the people who get paid. So we try to do as much insight into our consumer preferences as possible to understand what it is that really motivates them and interests them so that we can deliver perceived value to the consumer and not just what we want them to have. So it's very tempting to abuse our monopoly position. I mean, in lots of ways, you know, as a reward professional in a big company, you have a monopoly. You know, they will take what you give them, but it may not be what they want, and it may not be an efficient way of using the resources you have available in the reward function. So understanding the customer, customer insight is where it's all at. So for you, it's not so much about benchmarking against other organisations? I think it's... The trouble with benchmarking is that you know, it doesn't really... The relativity of pay is, I think, a huge problem. You know, so just doing what other people do because that's what they do is not the answer with pay. I think it leads us to the, to the wrong conclusions and the wrong kind of practices. So you know, I, one of the things I say is we wouldn't pay anybody unless other people did it. Um, we only pay people because other people pay uh, but I think we need to have more insight and understand better what it is that drives people. And it isn't necessarily pay, it's the combination of the employment proposition, the reputation of the employer, the career prospects, the opportunity that you offer, the environment in which you operate, all these things. You know, I'm sure in your business, Francis, you know, the value of what it is that people contribute to their society is a huge motivational driver. It's not all about money. And it's not that dissimilar in Unilever. So we'd like to feel that our people have a sense of commitment for what it is that we do and not just what we pay. Absolutely. P people come to work for Oxfam because they want to make a difference in the world. And uh, we hope because we do have quite a good reputation uh, as an international NGO. And so people uh, feel that their, their effort is going to make more of a difference towards overcoming poverty and suffering working for us. So that and the whole career development, the personal development, the enjoyment of doing the job, uh, whether you work well with your colleagues, are all absolutely vital parts of working for us. Um, the reward is there as a, as a basic, but uh, that's really not what brings people to work with a sparkle in their eyes. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so we have a big programme on sustainability, so this is something that's very close to the, the Unilever strategy, is to be more efficient in the way that we help people to improve the standard of their lives as consumers of our products. This uh, seems like a suitably uplifting place to leave this discussion, at least for now. But many thanks to my guests, Charles Cotton, Peter Newhouse and Francis Richardson. Thank you all. You can find out more about today's speakers and read up on the CIPD's own research on reward in the show notes for this podcast. Click through to cipd.co.uk forward slash podcasts. If you're looking for more insight into reward-related issues, do not miss the upcoming CIPD annual conference and exhibition. Manchester is the venue and the dates for your diary the 8th, 9th and 10th of November. Next time, we're going to be talking about shared purpose, which we've touched on today. How do smart organisations create that vital but elusive spark? And equally importantly, how do they sustain it? Join me then. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.